Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Kate. Hi. And Graham. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about working in the nonprofit sector. This is something that our two guests today have experience with. Um, and I guess to start off, I'd like to ask the two of you just to detail, you know, maybe without going into all the details, um, what that experience has looked like. Um, start Starting with Kate, how long have you worked in that sector? So I've been um, working in the nonprofit sector my entire sort of professional career. So that's a little under 15 years. Um, and I've done it at every stage of every level of management. So I've been a frontline staff person, I've been a middle manager, and I, I now function at the executive level. We're not used to having executives on this show, I'll have you know. I know. I feel very nervous about confessing that. <laughs> and, and Graham, what has your experience been like? My entire professional career has also been in the nonprofit sector, but it's much shorter than Kate's. Um, I got into uh, into nonprofits back in 2017 when I graduated from from college and became an AmeriCorps volunteer for a year, serving at um, a local nonprofit here in town. So I, I ended up staying on as a staff person there before going off to grad school, and now I work for a very small nonprofit back in Rochester. So about three years in total in the in the sector, all as you know, kind of like frontline, uh, lower level staff. Cool. Now, the two of you both reached out to me, you know, seemed to be interested in doing the show. I assume there was some reason for that, that in some way there's been, there have been experiences the two of you have had that didn't sit right with you. Um, I guess to lead off the discussion, what is it about working at nonprofits that you felt was worth coming on the radio to talk about? I think for me, it's, you know, like the, the, the big thing is that nonprofit work is mission driven like i got into nonprofit work because i wanted to like get paid to do something i really believed in and yeah like that's why i got into it but the reality is that there's a lot of problems with nonprofits especially because we exist in a, this larger capitalist political economy and there's a lot of there's a lot of problems that you know just come with with that so I think that's why I wanted to talk about it, you know, the, the fact that I still want to do this mission-driven work, but that there's a lot of really real problems with nonprofits. Yeah, I would agree with um, what Graham said. It's, you know, I think for for everyone who sort of comes to nonprofit work, you do it, you know, with this great feeling of I'm, I'm, I'm doing important work and it is important, but there's sort of two like big it's like issues with it, right? One is yeah, I mean, the reason why nonprofits exist is because, you know, we are uh, taking the sh one particular sharp edge off of uh, how how capitalism reverberates around our, our society. You know, we make it more palatable. We basically um, are subsidizing capitalism in a lot of ways, which is a, a challenging way to feel. And there's a lot to talk about there, but also um, there's a tension between working at a nonprofit and recognizing yourself as a worker. 
I have felt that myself. I have seen other people uh, struggle with that. And it's a really, it's a really hard thing to know how to navigate sometimes. You know, we're all um, in our own ways alienated from our labor. And I think working at a nonprofit can, can make that tension feel uh, a little bit sharper sometimes. Right. And, and it's that sort of tension that um, I think is an interesting subject to explore. Um, I was doing a little reading in advance of uh, recording this episode because I myself have not worked in this field. And, you know, it seems like there's the goal of, you know, serving whatever purpose your organization might have is in ways directly at odds with being treated well as a worker, having your labor valued. You know, this is true for every company, but instead of profit here, the goal is, you know, some other abstract thing, some policy goal. Or, and because that goal is often shared by the employees themselves, it's not just profit that will end up in a CEO's bank account. You know, there's a bit more conflict there. Is that right? Exactly. And it makes it maybe sometimes a little bit harder for people to advocate for themselves in that way. You know, if you if you feel like you are not getting paid a fair wage, but you know that if you uh, advocate for yourself, that's going to be coming out of a budget that is already, I would imagine, incredibly tight and doesn't contemplate uh, a pay raise for you. And you know that you that would maybe necess- necessarily cut services to people who need them. Like how do you how do you how do you navigate that? In a way, it becomes a way of justifying lower wages, though. At you know at a, at a big enough scale, this is the re- reason why that nonprofit workers end up making less than workers in other fields, right? Yes, and it's um you know there's sort of a part of the nonprofit culture is like we all know that like we all know we don't get paid enough. We all know we have like you know, the worst office equipment, like it's like, you know, it's in some ways kind of a running joke, but um, exactly that. And, you know, Graham mentioned that he was an AmeriCorps volunteer before taking on a, a permanent staff position. And that's, you know, the AmeriCorps program is a really an interesting thing sort of as part of this conversation, because um, at least in agencies where I've seen AmeriCorps function, um, you know, it's a way to 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 basically pay people even less um, to do the work that they need done, um, and to justify it as an experiential thing. I mean, there's just, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I mean, it's the idea is like, if, if you're working for something that, uh, has this higher purpose, then you accept that you're not going to necessarily, uh, be paid appropriately for it. Yeah. So the AmeriCorps experience was really, really interesting. Um, you effectively get paid like $5 an hour. So it's not a wage, a stipend. That's what it is. They give you a stipend. It's like $400 a week or something like that. And it ends up being like $5 an hour that you get paid to basically be a full-time employee, you know, of this, of whatever organization you work for. You know, when I was an AmeriCorps volunteer, I was on food stamps the entire time. And that's like very common for AmeriCorps volunteers. It's really crazy. And they, they sell the whole thing, like Kate was saying, as, you know, this experiential learning thing where you get to experience what it's like to be incredibly low income. Um, and a lot of the people that I knew who, who did AmeriCorps came from low income families. They knew, they already knew what that was like. This Because in, in reality, AmeriCorps for, for so many people is like the only thing you can do to get into the nonprofit sector in the first place. You know, like they, they often require you to have some experience working in the sector before an organization will hire you. And one of the only ways you can really get that is through the, these types of AmeriCorps programs. There are like tens of thousands of AmeriCorps volunteers 
every year all across this country that you know are in the same position that I've been. I, I can say from experience that that sort of thing where you need to work this place that isn't going to pay you very well, if at all, is not unique to the nonprofit sector. Um, the journalism industry and other industries are built off unpaid internships that kids coming fresh out of college you know, have to work these if they want a foothold in the industry that they got a degree in. And obviously, you know, not paying people for the work ends up excluding a lot of people from that work. It, you know, denies opportunities to so many people who would otherwise be good at the job, but can't get their resumes looked at for a job interview. But with, you know, nonprofit sector, it, it does ring a little uneasy because, you know, these low wages, the, the way that workers feel like they're being squeezed is directly at odds with what so many of them have to say about broader societies. You know, so, so many of these organizations are built towards um, progressive aims and they like to have a progressive reputation. But do you see sort of a conflict between that and the reality of how they treat their workers? Yeah. From my experience, like, in my experience, right, I, I, I don't see any any malicious uh, acts uh, relative to the workers of nonprofits. It's more of this sort of, you know, sense of like, well, we all know what we're here to do, which is good work, you know, capital G, capital W, good work. And that becomes the justification for everything else, the justification for why you can't get a raise, the justification for the fact that we pay frontline staff members who are handling a tremendous amount of work and uh, often incredibly stressful, difficult, like crucial work, uh, and they get paid incredibly low wages. I mean, they, if, if often people will qualify for the own service, their, the services they are themselves providing as front level staff in nonprofits. If if it's a an agency where you know you must be income eligible to access services, which many are, which is that's that's the whole other part of the conversation, right? But yeah, it just like I think like the culture of it is we have loyalty to our organization because we know we're doing good work and we all know how hard it is and we all know how tight the budget is. And so I think it becomes oppressive in that way. You could like to speak up for what you feel you may be entitled to is uh, is in some ways speaking up against the mission, uh, which is a really uncomfortable place to be as a worker. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I have definitely experienced that before. I think less so in the job I'm currently in and, and more so in the job I worked right after AmeriCorps. Um, actually worked for a, a large foundation in town. So we weren't really a service provider. We were more like the people that you know fund and work with all the service providers. But I, I definitely still experienced that. Um, and I think one of the things that uh, that I also experienced that that felt very oppressive was just a complete resistance to any any feedback or challenge to the way with work was currently being done from you know the frontline or lower level staff to the 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 leadership of the organization. Um, these you know nonprofits are incredibly top down organizations. They there's their hierarchical powers concentrated in the executive staff and you know the, the leadership and really the board of most of these nonprofits. And what they say goes. There's not a lot of room for you know information and and, and ideas. 
continent to flow up from the bottom of the organization. I, I felt oppressed by that all the time. Now, when you talk about a board, you know, a lot of these organizations, they're reliant on donors in some way. And did that ever become like an obstacle to changes that would have made your life better? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, you know, I think the thing with working at a nonprofit that you realize pretty quickly, especially um, especially for me, because I I am now in a position to be one of the people involved with higher level, higher level decisions is that everything, absolutely everything turns on funding. You know, that is the the axis upon which we all live um, in the nonprofit world. It's not, you know, that's the big thing. It's not actually uh, doing the good work. Like that's what it starts as, but then it really, uh, really turns into this sort of um, mania about maintaining our funding, getting more funding. How are we going to do that? And then what happens is you are completely at the mercy of whatever requirements those funders want to uh, put on you with their funding. And so um, suddenly your mission is not your own because if someone gives you, yeah, the agency I work at has a $13 million revenue side budget, right? So if someone is giving us $2 million, that's a huge amount of money. What they tell us we have to do with that, what they tell us we cannot do with that we have to obey that or they won't give it to us. And it's $2 million. And that happens over and over and over. So if, for example, if you work in a federally funded agency, well, there are all sorts of restrictions that come with federal funding that absolutely impact um, how staff interacts, what they can do, what they can't do, or how we help people, um, and on down the line. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, yeah, it's it's like yes, the board actually. So the board is is the most powerful entity within the organization, but the the people who are actually telling us what to do and how we do it are the people who pay us, just like everyone else, right? Um, and in this case, it's our funders. I think that's really interesting. Um, I came across an article in a, on a website called The Strike Wave, talking it's from 2017, talking about a what at the time looked like a wave of labor organizing within this sector, and I'm just going to quote. A little bit from it here because it echoes a lot of what the two of you have been saying. Quote, boss resistance generally looks different than the more brazen union-busting tactics from the corporate sector. More common, workers said, is it takes the form of guilt-tripping, with management stressing that collective bargaining could mean cuts to staffing, programming, and therefore less services available for their vulnerable clients. Nonprofits are also dependent on government funding and private foundation support, which managers point out can come with strings that prevent dollars from going to the types of demands workers are making at the bargaining table. And that right there is, you know, the last 10 minutes of this conversation in effect. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I know um, I've, I've seen nonprofit workspaces try to organize. I've seen it get shut down. Um, and I've heard those exact reasons given for uh, why a union would be uh, problematic in in a nonprofit space. And like, sure, there are some places where, um, for example, uh, I've worked in agencies where essentially union rights were written into the personnel policies explicitly to discourage people from organizing. Um, so there are places where I guess it's it's not so bad and maybe a union isn't necessary, but absolutely. Um, I can tell you, I can speak with some amount of confidence that most people who are running nonprofits, um, hate 
the idea of their staff unionizing and would go to great lengths to stop it. And uh, guilt tripping is exactly how it looks. Yeah, I mean, I I have experienced that not not in relation to trying to organize a union, but in you know just fighting for more time off, you know, or like to not work a ten hour day. That guilt tripping is very very prevalent in you know, in these spaces in 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 all sorts of ways. And in a way, this kind of echoes um, something that has come up a lot on Punching Out, which is this idea of do what you love which has been this mantra for, you know, so many bosses and, and so many um, people in, you know, the last couple of decades. And what it comes down to is that when you're doing these things, you know, the higher ups expect that to be a viable substitute for a healthy wage. You know, they expect the fact that you're doing something that you like, whether it's, you know, for a good cause in this case, or we've talked in the past about like working in the video game industry, which a lot of people want to do at the end of the day, that becomes an excuse for bosses not to provide the sorts of wages or conditions that workers need to make ends meet. Yeah, I think that that sort of mindset is baked in to, you know, the nonprofit uh, structure um, in a lot of ways. Um, And then it sort of becomes reified because then that's how people plan their budgets. That's how they think about funding. That's how they think about how positions should be compensated. And so it's like, well, this is always how it's been. We always know this is how it is. So, um, you know, instead of having um, people uh, think about things uh, in a more expansive, uh, equitable way in terms of compensation, it's just, well, we all know this is how it goes. Um, but really, that's that's only true for uh, the people who are doing like the actual work of these organizations. Um, at the bottom, I, I can tell you right now, there there's no executive director of a nonprofit who isn't getting paid just fine. <laughs> you know, it's I, I think the there's always a justification for why uh, we can't pay staff more. And at this point, it's just become uh, the, the same old tune that we all know. So uh, why even ask? Because you know what it is. Our budget's too tight. We don't have the funding. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way is what you're describing exactly and i i think just like on the left we have this idea that um you know they have money we have people right and to some extent that assumes that those people will be willing to fight for you know without necessarily a financial uh reward at the end of it you know nobody out there you know advocating against uh you know climate change is getting expecting a big payday at the end of that work. They're doing it because it's necessary. But when it comes to, you know, people's jobs as it is at this organization, that is, it's hard to square, I guess, in my mind, at least. Either you have other um, experiences or something that, you know, you'd like to discuss before we end this segment. I mean, I could talk for a long time about um, like staff members and nonprofits who are both, uh, exempt and non-exempt from the Fair Labor Stand- Fair Labor Standards Act and how that plays out. Um, but I don't know if that's too sort of. Well, I'm I'm curious about it. Just you know, tell me a little. Okay. Well, so um, 
the Fair Labor Standards Act is, is, is a, a big thing, but how it's sort of relevant to this conversation is you can either, um, your a position can either um, be exempt from that or not. And so when, when um, you are exempt in your position from the Fair Labor Standards Act, it basically means that you are truly salaried. Um, you are paid a salary. That's what you're paid. Your hours that you work are, are not are not necessarily relevant. So, and this is reserved for positions that have sort of specialized uh, ability, like, you know, uh, either like a higher level of training required, uh, like a degree, things like that. So in the context of my work, um, because I work in the legal field, you know, um, attorneys, uh, people who have higher level positions, those kinds of things, they're all um, exempt from the Fair Labor Standards Act. So you get paid your salary, the hours you work are the hours you work. But um, for the people who aren't exempt, so, you know, the truly frontline staff, you know, intake coordinator, paralegal, like all the people who are basically running the day-to-day operations of the agency at the the bottom level, you know, where where all the work is getting done, um, they're not actually salaried. I mean, this is, this is articulated to people when they're hired as, you know, you're going to be making, what, $30,000 a year. But actually, um, you have an hourly wage that you are getting paid. Um, and where this comes into conflict is uh, overtime. Hmm. Because there's this expectation that we all, you know, we're all overworked and we all do our work and it's so great. But I know that there are programs where um, the conversation is not happening with staff members who would be entitled to overtime that, oh, you should be getting paid for these extra hours you're working. And I think that it's probably pretty uncomfortable for anyone to bring that up. But I think that happens a lot. Um, and it, it troubles me. It troubles me that um, there are people who are entitled to be getting, getting paid for their labor who aren't and who would feel bad about asking for that. It, it's that guilt tripping again. Yeah. And you really, you, can, you internalize it. You know, you, it's, you, you do it to yourself. Like I should, I don't, I don't really need this, you know, I know where like, we don't really have the money for it. And, and, and you just basically, you, you do it, you do it for them. Hmm. You, you say that at the end of the day, it's for a good cause. Exactly. I think that will wrap up this segment, but uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about the broader implications of the nonprofit sector within um, the economy as a whole. And, what role it plays in the big picture. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Kate. Hi. And Graham. Hello. We spent the first 20 minutes talking about Kate and Graham's experience for nonprofits and at the heart of those organizations, treating their workers fairly and the achieving the goals that they set out, which are often laudable goals, uh, progressive goals even. In this segment, we want to take a step back and look at the history of the nonprofit sector, where it came from, how it came to be in the United States, especially, and, you know, the broader role it plays in the modern economy. And Graham, this is 
you know, the topic that you really wanted to discuss. So I, I guess my question to start is, how did all this start, if that's not too broad? No, I don't think it is. So the, the modern nonprofit sector as we know it is really a recent phenomenon in you know, the long history of the United States. Um, today, there are more than one and a half million nonprofit organizations throughout the country. The total value of the sector is more than a trillion dollars, and it employs almost like around 10% of the entire U.S. workforce. But it really didn't used to be like this. Um, and, and for much of the history of the United States, it wasn't at all. Uh, all the way back, you know, in the, the dawn of industrial capitalism, there, there weren't really any nonprofits or charities. Um, there, there were some, like some churches would run some like feeding programs and, you know, the, the settlement house movement of the, the 19, the early 1900s, um, kind of showed us what like some sort of nonprofit uh, service work would look like, you know, kind of civil society charity work. Um, but it wasn't really until the 1930s when, you know, the great depression hit that any sort of welfare system at all developed in the United States. We had, you know, the, the New Deal, the creation of Medicare and Medicaid, and of Social Security, later Medicare and Medicaid in the 60s, um, and all these other social programs that, you know, exploded from, you know, really about 1930 through the 1960s, all of which were, you know, for the most part run by the government, so typically the federal government, in some cases the state government. And, you know, so once this, this welfare state was created in the 1960s, like I said, run by the federal government, it you know it really started in, in the 70s and 80s as the country took a turn uh, towards you know neoliberalism and and, and conservatism and arose. That this welfare state started to get privatized. That all these services that the government once delivered, whether it was healthcare or uh, you know uh, feeding programs or anything like that, they started to get privatized and decentralized. So instead of the federal government directly providing services to people and, and programs to people. They use the money that they would have done, to, that they would have used to do that and instead provided it to smaller local community organizations and agencies. And it was, it this really started to take off in the 1980s uh, and, and just exploded through the next 40 years until we got to where we are today, where we have, like I said, one and a half million nonprofits across the country um, that just, you know, take up a huge, portion of our of our social life in a way it sounds like what you're describing is like contracting in a way the, the government is contracting out this work because they don't want to do it themselves or it would cost less money to do it this way to these organizations yeah that's that's exactly right um there's also ideas of like you know competition is is better just it just makes everything better so there's a lot of competition in the nonprofit sector for funding between organizations, there's a lot of like innovation of how to do services, you know, in, in a better way or like what kind of services to be delivered, should be delivered, or even just like the language of how you talk about the work that you do, all these kinds of ways that you show you're being innovative are, are really big, big pieces of, of this, this sector now that are all deeply influenced by the, you know, the ideas, the, the, the decentralization uh, that the, the federal government has really led. Um, of the of our welfare system so then this becomes just a part of like the broader trend of privatization across western governments in general not not just the u.s but also seen in the uk and and elsewhere over the last 
40 years or so, starting with Reagan and Thatcher in the 1980s, where, you know, government seeks to cut its spending and in whatever way it can, except for like cutting the military, but that's another matter. It's it's all ideologically driven in that sense, right? Yes, definitely. Um, Definitely. And there like some of the ideas behind it also include things like the idea that communities know themselves better. And so they are, you know, small organizations in communities are better able to serve their people because they know their people, they know their community. When it, what it, what this translates to in reality is a competition for scarce amounts of funding between between more and more organizations. And, and, and it really leads to all the problems that we talked about in the first section of this, uh, this, this podcast. It, it creates, you know, that classic race to the bottom where these organizations now have to um, show that they can pay their workers the least finding, you know, whatever legal uh, exemption or loophole will allow them to do that. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is really interesting because this is not a history I'd been aware of. You know, I, I just sort of in the back of my head, I guess I assume that these organizations had existed from uh, time immemorial, but obviously that was not true. We get a sense that, you know, if things stay the way they are for, for long enough, we get a sense that this is just how they should be. You know, this is just how they always will be. But when you describe it the way you have it, it means that it could be done differently. Oh, totally. Uh, I mean, the idea that all these services that are, you know, that make up the welfare state need to be privatized and, you know, built upon in a, in a system that's built upon competition for scarce resources. That's like, that's very like modern. That's a very recent idea. You know, the, like the, the government's, uh, of the world back in the 1930s and 40s when they built those, you know, those massive welfare states really built them on the idea that the government should provide for the basic needs of people. Now, do you know if this is sort of a uniquely American situation? Like, are there nonprofits to this scale in Canada or the UK that you know of? So there are like nonprofit organizations uh, in, you know, countries like Canada and the United Kingdom, but the, the, the scale is not nearly the same. The United States has gone far deeper into privatizing their welfare systems than either of those those countries have. And all this is labeled with the idea that it will produce more efficient results. It will, uh, like you said, these places know each other, know know, uh, their neighborhoods best, so they'll be able to serve them better. But I I, I think we can see in other aspects of uh, governmental policy that having just a singular program that handles all this stuff in many ways is actually more efficient. It removes a lot of the layers of bureaucracy from whether that's mean te- means testing or what have you to that get in the way of actually doing the work. Yeah. You know, I can certainly speak to that. Um, just seeing uh, how difficult it can be for people to figure out how to access the services of nonprofits. Um, it's, like it can be really crazy. Like if there are five nonprofits in town that do the same sort of work, but they've all sort of privately agreed to only handle certain aspects of it. So they don't get into fights with each other. Um, You know, you can have a person who just needs some kind of help having to call five different places, um, you know, being shuffled along to another, you know, here, no, you have to call them, you have to call them. And then when they actually find the right place, 
the amount of personal information they have to provide, uh, the sort of qualifying metrics to even uh, access these services are are extreme. And that's another thing that people have become completely inured to. I mean, this idea that um, for people to get what they need, they have to jump through a series of hoops that uh, <laughs> like it uh, becomes, I think, very quickly overwhelming. Um, that's totally inefficient. Yeah, there was a, an article just a couple of weeks ago, I think, in the New York Times about um, how even like people who have degrees in like economics find it difficult navigating the American healthcare system, the the Obamacare exchanges. They you know have no idea how to judge which plan will be best for them, and so a lot a lot of them just will click the first option on the page just because that's simplest and that whatever benefits or harm that may come to them from that seems less important in the moment than just taking the simplest option, not having to make a choice. And when so much of our safety net is built around this idea of choice, that um, that, that gets in the way of people actually feeling safe about it. I mean, it's uh, the idea that people want to shop around for their like nonprofit experience. I mean that's bananas, right? So what what are we what are we accomplishing here by by uh, you know um, we've got so many great nonprofits in town. It's like well that's cool, I'm glad. But what people really need is just help with you know whatever aspect of of their life they find in 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 chaos at the moment or crisis. So absolutely, I mean I think would it make a lot more sense to just have you know, social services departments that are actually holistic and you go there and you know, I, whatever I need, I can find here. Yes. Um, I think that would be sort of a revelatory for people to just be able to go to one place and get what they need um, in terms of support. Instead, uh, you go to social services, you have to endure the nightmare of that um, because it's a totally uh, dehumanizing experience. Um and then usually they refer you out to a handful of nonprofits for other help with stuff. I, I, I cannot imagine how nerve wracking it is to feel like this is the way you need to access um, critical uh, support for yourself, running all over town, hoping that you'll be able to figure out what to do instead of just going to the one place that is uh, charged by the government to care for people. And, and people you know, come away with a sense that, well, surely there's wouldn't be a better way because otherwise we'd be using that better way. But, you know, that that isn't necessarily the case. Now, Graham, you had mentioned in our break that there's sort of a double purpose to all of this privatization and the way that these um, organizations can often be used to defang the more radical elements that were starting to pop up in the 60s when all of this was happening right yeah that's exactly right um you know in the in the late 1960s it it seems pretty clear to me that the the ruling class of of america felt like this country was literally on the brink of revolution you know there had been uprising after uprising after uprising every year in the 1960s massive uh rebellions in in american cities and on the backs of these rebellions, really radical organizations were, were growing. You know, the Black Panther Party is the classic example of this. Um, and they were incredibly successful. They were incredibly successful. In a matter of years, the Black Panther Party had chapters in dozens of cities all across the United States. They were 
very successfully recruiting people to their revolutionary program. Um, uh, oftentimes they were recruiting uh, very poor, very low income working class people to, to their very revolutionary program through providing direct services to people. You know, the Black Panther Party famously had a feeding program for kids before school that kids would come the Black Panthers would read, you know, would read to the kids and read them, you know, very radical rev revolutionary literature as they were, you know, getting getting fed breakfast. Mainstream civil rights organizations were starting to do the same thing as well. You know, the Congress for Racial Equality, which started out as a very, you know, kind of classic civil rights organization engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience with a kind of liberal political bent, by the 19th, the later 1960s had fully taken on the rhetoric of black power and black nationalism, um, which was direct challenge to you know, the, the control and, and power of white ruling class elites at the time. Um, and tons of organizations followed this trend right here in Rochester even. We had an organization called Fight that started in the 1960s. It stood for um, Freedom, Independence, God, Honor Today, I think, after they changed from their initial name. And Fight was a very radical organization. They they were they did community organizing. They built a huge base of people, and they would directly challenge the ruling class of our city. That they famously went down to New Jersey and held a, a massive protest of the Kodak uh, board of board of directors meeting. So, like all this, you know, all this radical stuff was happening on the backs of these major uprisings. The ruling class was very scared that they were going to that a full on revolution was coming to this country, and a few key players of the ruling class, I think a big notable player is the Ford Foundation, uh, led by McGeorge Bundy in the 1960s, found out that if they used the rhetoric of black power um, and convinced people from these, you know, these more um, flexible organizations like CORE, like FIGHT, they used the rhetoric of black power to convince those organizations that the way to solve the problems that their communities faced were, was through black capitalism, was through development and service provision, all funded by the Ford Foundation, um, they could control these organizations and, and stop them from get, getting, you know, into more radical and revolutionary politics and, and, and organizing. And that's exactly what happened. Um, they, you know, a great example from from Rochester again, the Fight Organization, which did this real intense organizing for years, uh, eventually took a major grant from. I, I actually think their grant was from the the, the government to start a community development. Uh, organization and and basically fight went from this mass based organization in Rochester to building a public housing complex fight village which still exists today um, and this is exactly what happened to numerous radical civil rights organizations uh, in the 1960s and from this you know I think foundations especially but also the federal government figured out that they could they could use this model to kind of co-opt the left at large, that they could uh, take radical college students, radical young people, um, use the language and the rhetoric that, that they liked to hear, the radical language and rhetoric they liked to hear, to draw them into these organizations, get them get them stuck working at these types of organizations, uh, and, and turn them into service providers instead of people fighting for, for social change. Um, I personally think that this, this history has played a huge role in destroying the left connection to uh, radical methodologies like political organizing, revolutionary organizing. Um, and it's just, I think it's been a huge, a huge factor in the, 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 the long decline that left politics in America has seen since the 1960s. 
And what you're describing is a sort of defanging of these organizations. It's removing whatever sort of critique of power they may have in in service of, you know, lesser goals that aren't as threatening to the ruling class. And, and this is something that happened within the labor movement about late 1940s, early 1950s, after the passage of uh, Taft-Hartley, which required these organizations to oust their more radical members, you know, people with communist or anarchist ties, and prompting the Second Red Scare in that era. And within a decade, labor organizations, labor unions, you know, instead of these radical places that had gone on wildcat strikes all throughout even World War II when labor leadership had taken no-strike pledges, you have organizations who see their main avenue of political power as, you know, fundraising for the Democratic Party to win elections. I was just going to say, I think that's a great, a great comparison. We're going to take another break here, but when we come back, we're going to talk about how all of this could be made better. You know, what what solutions do we see that could turn these organizations and their goals into something that works for not just their workers, but communities? We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Kate. Hi. And Graham. Hello. We've been talking for the first two segments of this show about the nonprofit sector, both um, starting with you know Kate and Graham's personal experiences working in those organizations. And, and then in the second segment, moving on to the history of the sector and how it came to be the way that it is today. And I was reminded in the course of that segment about a point that frequent punching out host Noah likes to make, which is that it's important to see the ways in which these things are a choice. Because once you recognize that they are a choice, you know that we can choose to do things differently. So so often things in our society, we feel like there is no alternative. You know, this is just the way things are when, in fact, a lot of decisions went towards making things the way they are. They, they weren't inevitable at all. And so I want to spend the last segment of the show talking about what choices could we make to create a different future for the nonprofit sector? You know, how would we see them changed to, you know, make things better for everybody? So I think the big thing to to start with in this conversation for me is, is like differentiating between like social service organizations and social change organizations. I think that is an important distinction to make because I think the solutions for those organizations are different. I would think of like social service organizations being like any organization that provides for like the basic needs, the basic welfare of normal everyday people. So this is like people, organizations that feed people, organizations that provide transportation, organizations that provide housing, organizations that provide legal services and, and, and that kind of stuff. And for those organizations, like, you know, because of this long history of privatization, uh, I, I think the solution is really simple. They just need to be nationalized. Like those things need to be provided by the government as a basic right to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. The government is is the ultimate service provider for us, right? That's what it should be. 
the problem breaking it up into all the little pieces is what we've been, you know, talking about for the last however long. So yeah, I don't think there's any any reason to continue a system in which um, services are broken up this way. It should all just be one thing, and 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 it should be paid for by the government. As we laid out in that last segment, you know, it becomes difficult for people to know even where to start, you know, when it comes to receiving services because of the ways in which it's been broken up and spread out across all of these different organizations, you know, having like just one office you could go to or call to, you know, set things straight instead of the five you were describing, Kate, that would make a major difference in the lives of the people who benefit from these services. Yeah. And it would also take out a lot of the, the volatility that exists right now in the system predicated on on funding, right? If if an agency has a catastrophic loss of funding, they're going to have to cut services. And those are probably services that people are relying on. And so this creates like a really unstable environment for people who are looking for, for assistance. If we nationalize it and it's all housed uh, in the context of the federal government, then that doesn't happen anymore. I think another part of this this solution is also realizing that like, you know, like service providing, like service provider organizations and, and like that, that kind of a thing is not the solution to a lot of the problems that they're trying to solve. You know, the problem of hunger to me is not solved by better food distribution services like Foodlink, for example, will not solve hunger. What solves hunger is making sure that every community has a grocery store that provides uh, accessible, affordable, high quality food all the time to people. Uh, and I think that that, like municipalizing that and, and nationalizing that kind of a thing and use, using the funding that would have gone to Foodlink to, to, to do exactly that is a much better model of actually solving the problem of hunger. And, and you had talked um, about how we had these organizations that were aimed at uh, addressing the causes of the problems and they were shifted over the course of the 60s and 70s um, into these nonprofit organizations that aim to address more of the symptoms rather than the causes. And we, you know, poverty now is famously no better than it was when the war on poverty began. Yeah. In some respects, it's created secure jobs for people at the heads of these organizations to, you know, continue um, addressing the symptoms of problems that we as a society haven't really tried to solve. I mean, not even in some sense. That's like, absolutely. Like poverty is, is big business. Huge business. Yeah. Huge business, both for, you know, the non, the nonprofit organizations that serve people in poverty, but also for the, the, the actors in the market that create poverty in the first place. You know, like Kate and I are both very involved in the housing movement locally and the, the landlords that make incredible, landlords make incredible amounts of profit off of really, really terrible quality, really unaffordable housing for very low income people. That's, I think, a great example of exactly what that means. Now, Graham, you had laid out in, during our break sort of a, a three-step plan for bringing about these changes. What was step two in that? So step two was, it, it dealt more with the, uh, the social change organization that I kind of mentioned at the beginning of this segment. And when I say social social change organizations, I mean like the organizations like, you know, like CORE, like Fight, 
that you know used to do like deep organizing for people but are now stuck in in this nonprofit sector and dependent on foundation funding um you know doing a lot of apolitical work i think the the base that needs to happen to to change how these organizations work because we still need social change organizations is that they just need blanket general operating funds on a very long-term basis that does not go away so that these organizations can have secure and stable staff so that they can you know start to do the deep organizing that i think is really required to change society they need that general operating funding on a long-term basis that will not go away i think a lot of these organizations also really need to you know change how they operate i think i said in the last segment that this co-optation of social movements which is really what it is co-optation of social movements has led to the depoliticization of a lot of issues it's led to a lot of these organizations just completely losing touch with what it means to do organizing they just you know a lot of them just provide services or do lobbying or advocacy work and that's good but it's not going to it's not it's not going to create a social movement that that actually changes the world which is really what you what you need to do to, to actually solve a lot of these problems. Um, so I think that that is kind of like the twofold, what needs to happen with social change organizations. They need general operating funds and they need to rediscover what it means to actually build social movements. When you talk about them being depoliticized, I, I think to some extent that's happened with so many things. Things get moved from something that can be changed by protesting a politician to something that can only happen through these lobbyists, you know, through these backdoor deals, through arcane language in legislation. And that has the effect of making people a less knowledgeable about what it is that their government is doing and b seeming like there's nothing they can do to change what their government is doing. When you have this uh, scenario where power only happens behind closed doors instead of you know, through what you're just, you know, social movements. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of like most of the people that I have worked with in, in social change work, they, they either just don't understand like what power is and how it operates in a capitalist political economy, or even if they do, they just, they don't know how to build their own power and, you know, and use it in the long term. And I, I personally am still learning a lot about how to do this. But I think if we're going to do anything to change, to really solve a lot of these problems that are ultimately caused by capitalism, we're going to have to rediscover how to do like large scale political organizing, social movement organizing in a sustained fashion. And in order to do that, like I said, we these organizations need general operating funds. Like I think about my current organization, which is we're really wanting to do this kind of deeper organizing, but we are stuck in this this you know, this system where we are dependent on funding for services to exist. And the longer we go, you know, be remaining dependent on these this funding for services, that the, the less likely it is that we will engage in this kind of deeper social movement organizing. So this is like a real problem I'm trying to deal with in in my own organization right now. And it's a huge challenge. Yeah. And then the last step you had described is sort of a democratization of these organizations and, and sort of explain what, what you meant by democratization. What would that mean? So I think it means a lot of things in practice. I think it means like every nonprofit deserves a union. Every nonprofit employee should be a part of a union. I think it also means that the 
board of directors of these organizations. The, the leadership of these organizations should be directly elected by you know, both the people that work at the organizations, but also by the people that these organizations serve. Um, so like my, my, first, my organization, City Roots Community Land Trust, already does a lot of, we have a directly elected board by the, the community that we serve. Um, our biggest challenge right now is you know, educating and, and building up a, a really strong base of, of people, a really strong membership base in you know our community so that those democratic elections um mean a lot more than just you know now this person's elected now this person's in the seat there's like actual debate about what direction to take the organization how to lead the organization that happens among the members um that leads to you know kind of deeper democracy and i think beyond just individual organizations the people that fund organizations the foundations need to be democratized as well and that's like that's not a new thing in in Rochester in the 1960s, uh, Friends of Fight, which is now Metro Justice, was fighting to democratize the community chest, which is the United Way. They wanted the direct the board of directors of the United Way to be directly elected way back in the 1960s. So that's that's not a new new thing. It's interesting because when you talk about democratization in this way, you know, I'm I'm struck by the ways in which we've privatized social services has really meant that those services are no longer accountable to the public. You know, these things that should be public goods are now being handled by uh, administrators who, you know, nobody had an election for them in most cases, you know, instead of, you know, being able to vote for the people in charge of these services as you could if they were simply nationalized, you don't really have a say over who guides the handling of these funds anymore when you have such a privatized system. And, and that leads to, you know, a, a loss of trust in many cases. Completely. It, it completely leads to a loss of trust. I think another thing that happens in, because of the way that the system is currently set up is just a total like alienation of not only the people working in these organizations, but the people receiving services from these organizations. There's like, there's no, I, I haven't seen very many service providing organizations that you know, uh, allow people to build relationship and solidarity with the, their, their, you know, the people that are also receiving these services or, or you know, working for a, a social change organization. So, Kate, is that something you've experienced as well, that alienation? It's certainly, um, it's prevalent. Absolutely. You know, I, the agency that I work for is trying to be intentional about you know, building community-based models to avoid that. But um, I think like the, like the inertia of it is certainly in that direction. It's a, it's a tough one. It, and it's, it, it makes everything that much more difficult. Fortunately, we're running against the clock here, but I want to thank the two of you for coming on. This has been a really informative for me and I hope many of our listeners as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So for this week, I'm Ryan and this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>